0: Well, good morning, church family. How's everybody doing? Awesome. Well, the first thing I want to do this morning before we open up the Bible is I want to just bring your attention to this article that I have written. It's called Prepare and Participate. And what I want you to do is I I want you to read this, not now, but sometime later this week. And I want every husband and every wife and even every kid to read it if possible. So if you have family worship, it would be good to read during family worship time. But I don't just want one person in the family to read it, I'd like everyone to read it. And then uh, pray a prayer of application about it. I spent a lot of hours on it, just basically poured out my heart regarding what worship is corporately and how we should do it, all right? And so what I'd like is for you to maybe fold it up and tuck it away in your Bible so that you're not distracted by it now. But I definitely want you to bring it out and having read it in preparation for Sunday worship next Sunday. And so um, if you want to interact with me over it, um, then send me an email, text message, phone call this week. I would love to do that with you. All right, so with that, I invite you to turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark chapter 11. The sermon text this morning is chapter 11, verse 12, all the way through chapter 13, verse 2. Now, it is a big section. It is 68 verses in all. All right, and the the reason that we're covering such a large piece of real estate is that what we see in this section is Jesus in Jerusalem, in the temple, on the last week of his life. All of the interaction is around and in the temple. And it is the biggest week of worship and celebration in the Jewish calendar. It's Passover time. And as we said last week, two to three million Jews have entered into the holy city. They have assembled and what Jesus has done is he has journeyed from the north down to the south and he went through Jericho where he healed blind Bartimaeus, if you can remember. And then after he healed blind Bartimaeus and Bartimaeus followed him, they went 18 miles through the mountains down into Bethany. And in Bethany, he met Mary and Martha where he healed Lazarus. And this is the deal. People are going crazy about Jesus. They have witnessed this miracle to blind Bartimaeus. They have witnessed this extraordinary miracle regarding Lazarus and him raising him from the dead after four days. People are going crazy over him, but at the same time, the Jewish leaders are going crazy about him. They want to kill him. They have plotted against him, and they are ready to take action against Jesus. All right, and so as he travels from Bethany, which is two miles east of Jerusalem, He's traveling into Bethany, and he's on a donkey. He's on the colt of a donkey, and people are throwing their coats down on the ground and palm branches on the ground, and they are essentially treating him as king, and they're saying, they're saying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And and, and we have in our minds this, this coronation of the king. If we had never read the text before, what we are expecting at this point is for the king to ride into Jerusalem and enter into the temple and to be set up on a throne and crowned over his head and people are going to bow down to this messianic king and worship him and he's going to rule in Jerusalem. That's what we're expecting. But if you've got your Bibles open, look at chapter 11, verse 11. It says that he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. I said last week that is the most anticlimactic verse we have seen in the Gospel of Mark. All right. It's just not what we would expect. And so for the next 68 verses, the next 68 verses, we see the king in and around the temple, not being coronated or crowned or set up on a throne but actually going going to spiritual battle with spiritual leaders, religious leaders, over their religiosity and their lack of recognizing Him as the true Messiah. And so what we're about to see in these 68 verses is a beautiful demonstration of the servant king. We need to see with our eyes, what is this king like? What does he stand for? What is his character? What, are his, what is his teaching? What are his words? What is he trying to confront? Not only what is he trying to confront in these particular people's lives and in the religious leaders' way about doing things, but what is he trying to confront in our own hearts and in our own lives? What would this king have to say to us? So that, that's the question. And so uh, for that, I want to ask Joey Boyd to come up and join me now. Joey, if you'll stand over here and use the wireless mic. As Joey's getting prepared for us to do the scripture reading together, I've uh, got a, a kind of a replica of the temple, and I'd like for you to call that up right now if you can. Okay, so this is what the temple looked like during the time of Jesus. All right, and so we're looking at it kind of from straight on, and the big, huge structure is what, what's called Herod's temple because he Herod had it had it rebuilt, and that that big structure is 172 feet wide 172 feet deep and 172 feet tall it's like 20 stories tall and that's what it looked like now this view here gives us a picture of how large it is it is a massive temple and on the outside here where you see people on the outskirts that would be called the court of the gentiles that's where gentiles could go into the temple area itself and be able to participate in worship to some degree they could not go any further because that wall that you see is what's called the dividing wall. Paul calls it the dividing wall in Ephesians chapter 2. Gentiles could not go any further. Only Jews go um, in, inside that next wall. And that's kind of the general temple area where people could still worship and talk and converse, but you had to be Jewish. And then once you entered in to that main section that's open, that's really called the court of the women because Jewish men and women could go there. And so much of worship happened right there. Giving happen, happened there. Singing happened there. Listening to teaching happened there. I mean, main worship happened there. And then the further you go to the inside, the more the leader, the men, and then the leaders, and then finally, when you made it into that huge structure, you had the holy place that contained what the the showbread, uh, the the the, the lampstands, and and all of that. And then there was the veil inside there, which was this massive uh, uh, curtain that behind the curtain was the most holy place where the glory of God dwelled and where the the high priest would go in once a year to make atonement for all of the Jews' sins. Okay, so this is where Jesus is spending His time for these 68 verses and these two or three days that we're reading today. And we're just going to leave this um, replica up so that we can kind of envision it as we read through and study the text. With that being said, you can look down at chapter 11, beginning in verse 12, and this is the reading of the Word of God. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went out to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them,
1: Is it not written? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations,
0: but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots.
1: Believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses.
0: Alright, so let's pause for a moment before we go further. And let's understand what we just read. So, Jesus curses this fig tree, and it's not about the fig tree. Alright? It's all about Israel and its leaders. All right, so he, he approaches this fig tree that has leaves and it looks healthy and it has everything that looks like it should have fruit on it. But in closer examination, there's not a single fig on the tree. What is Jesus doing here? He's using this as a visual parable. And he's saying, if you look at Israel and you look at its leaders, it has all of the appearances of religion it has all of the appearances of worship it has all the appearances of holiness but if you examine it up close there is no spiritual fruit there's none and so my cursing of the fig tree is a symbol of my cursing of Israel and its leaders because they say they worship but they don't they say they ho- they're holy but they're not they say they're righteous but they're not and so he comes into the into the temple of this this fruitless people, and what does he see? He sees a business center. He sees a a group of leaders who are greedy and materialistic, and, and he sees this open court of the Gentiles where Gentiles are supposed to be able to worship God and learn about God so that they also can be brought into the fold of God, but instead you have leaders who are charging enormous amounts of money interest in order to exchange their currency for the accepted currency for the annual temple tax. And not only that, they're charges enormous amounts of money for animals to be sacrificed later in the week on Passover. And because they know that Jews are coming from, from 100 miles away, 300 miles away, very difficult to bring their own animals, the leaders of the Jews have said, you know what, we can make a lot of money off this. It's kind of like when you're driving down the the road and there's no gas station anywhere around and finally you find one and they can charge you $6 a gallon because you know this is the only place to get it. That's what was going on here. And so he sees a bunch of extortioners and he calls it a den of thieves. What does he mean by that? Well, a den of thieves was literally a den in the mountains where robbers could go and befriend one another and hide out from the authorities, and they found friends there, and Jesus is saying, "You are exploiting innocent people, and you are protecting each other in your exploitation in the house of God." And so he comes here to cleanse the temple, He could purify it at least temporarily. And listen, y'all, look down at the text again in verses 20 through 25. Or what he is doing here, he is saying you need to trust God to remove whatever hinders you from bearing fruit for God. He's not saying have faith and you can do indiscriminate acts of destruction to nature like, you know, killing fig trees and throwing mountains into the water. That's not the point, all right? The, the point is this, trust God and you'll bear spiritual fruit and you'll receive God's greatest blessings in your life. That's the point. All right, now we pick up in verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I'll ask you one question.
1: Answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism
0: of John from heaven Or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people. for They all held that John really was prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know.
1: And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things.
0: And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard
1: and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another. And him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. And finally he sent him to them saying they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another this is the heir. Come let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants, and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the Scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes.
0: And they were seeking to arrest Him, but feared the people, for they perceived that He had told the parable against them. So they left Him, And went away. Keep your eyes down on the text. Because right here, there has never been a bigger moment on a bigger stage in a more crucial time than right here. And Jesus displays amazing courage. If you look down at the text, first of all, we can see that the vineyard actually represents Israel. If we look at the Old Testament, time and time again, the vineyard represents God's Love for Israel, and Israel personifies this, this, uh, the vineyard personifies Israel. You can specifically read Isaiah 5, verses 1 to 7, and you kind of see this picture that we just read about. The owner is God himself, all right? And so the tenants are Israel, and specifically the leaders of Israel. And all of the servants that come back to the vineyard in order to collect what belongs to the owner are prophets that were sent by God. And every prophet that was sent by God, Israel rejected. And they treated harshly. Until ultimately, this vineyard owner sends his son, and his son is Jesus Christ, right? And if you look down at the text, they kill the son. They kill him and they think that, oh, it's all going to be done. We're going to get what we want. We can get ours now. We'll get all of the blessings and all of the fruit and all of the fame and all of the glory. And Jesus says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. The others are the Gentiles, namely the New Testament church. And so Jesus is painting this picture of doom and judgment upon Israel and its leaders, and they know it. And he caps it all off by quoting Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23, about the cornerstone that was rejected. And there is significant irony here, because it was just two days before that the people were quoting Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Alright, so, so they're exalting Him, but now Jesus is quoting a few verses earlier, and He is saying to them, you are rejecting the cornerstone. You are rejecting the Messiah. And because of that, the kingdom is going to be given to others, to Gentiles. And so this is judgment upon people in their temple who, who essentially run it, own it, manage it, and, and treat it as theirs, and Jesus is being courageous here. And so, look back down at verse 13. They sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, He said to them,
1: why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me
0: look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's.
1: Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things
0: that are God's. And they marveled at him and Sadducees came to him and. They say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection... When they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong?
1: Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the
0: living. You are quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered,
1: The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these.
0: And the scribe said to him, You're right, teacher. You've truly said that he's one, and there's no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, He said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is
1: the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him
0: Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. What we want to observe in that section right there is Jesus' boldness. Because he's not merely just going in the temple and trying to tread water, maintain enough peace and respectability so that um, people won't just jump on him. No, he essentially goes for the jugular and says, I'm the Lord. Like, you know, Bartimaeus called me son of David a few days ago, son of David, and I didn't rebuke him because, in fact, I am the son of David. I come from the line of David, but I'm not just the son of David. I'm the God of David. I'm the Lord of David. I'm the Lord to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that I am Lord. Hear me. And of course, they did hear Him, and they heard Him gladly. And so, He's looking forward at this point to being the exalted King at the Father's right hand. And in His teaching, verse 38, He said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk
1: around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater
0: condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And He called His disciples to Him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow
1: has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on.
0: And as He came out of the temple, One of His disciples said to Him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings?
1: There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down.
0: Jesus, of course, here is prophesying and declaring about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 when the city and the temple will be completely destroyed and he declares its destruction. Thank you Joey for helping me in the reading. And so the question that we want to ask this morning actually it's threefold. We want to ask the questions, what does Mark want us to know about this servant king in the temple? What does he want us to know about the king in the temple? And then based on what we know, what does He want us to feel? And then based on what we feel, what does He want us to do? I mean, Mark doesn't just give us this, this account just for the sake that we know the, the, the history of Jesus' final week of His life before He's crucified. No, He wants us to appropriate it down into our head and then into our heart so that we can live it out. And so this is going to go fast. We've already spent a while this morning. And so really just going to be kind of a meditation on what Mark wants us to do with this account of the king and the temple. And so what does he want us to know? And one of the first things that he wants us to know is that the king is human. Did you notice in the text that it says that he was hungry? Why did he put that in there? Why, why did Mark include that he was hungry? He included it so that we will know that our king is not merely Lord and God, but he's also feels the same pains and struggles and longings and difficulties and temptations that we feel. He knows what our struggles are. He's felt them before. That's why the writer of the Hebrews says, we don't have an unsympathetic high priest. We have a sympathetic high priest who who has known and felt what we know and feel as humans. And because of that, he can identify with us. As he sits at the right hand of the Father, he can identify with us and sympathize with us in his compassion and in his grace. He is a sympathetic servant king. The second thing that he wants to show us is that he's judge. He's judge. He he comes in the temple and he condemns self-righteous, religiously, robust, but dead in their worship kind of people, and he goes in and judges them, and we see that in the judging of the fig tree and the cursing of it. I will tell you, Jesus is not sitting on the fence in regards to dead religion. He he is not ambivalent about religious leaders who have all of the outward trappings of religiosity, but they don't have the heart of it. No, he is judged, and he's going to judge it, just as he judged the fig tree in symbolism. We see that he's holy. Jesus is holy because he goes inside the temple and he purifies it. He he comes in and says, Listen, this is the place that's supposed to be a place of prayer. This is a place to to get on your knees and bow before the Lord of glory and worship him, and so that Gentiles can know more about him and love him. And here you are making it a den of thieves, a place for robbers to to consort with one another and to gain riches and money. And so he wipes it out. And listen, y'all, Jesus is holy. And there's something about worship that must embrace the holiness of God. Like we can revel in the grace of God, we can revel in the mercy and forgiveness of God, and we absolutely should. But as believers... We need to look upon a holy God who is supreme in His righteousness, who is set apart different from everyone else, who is absolutely sinless, and we need to say, I love that about my God. I love that about my Savior. And that's what He's doing here. He's cleansing the temple to make it holy because He Himself is holy. We see that Jesus is not just merely a judge and righteous who just lays it all out there and says, you're guilty and you're guilty, but He's a discipler. He's a compassionate discipler because he pulls the disciples aside and he says, listen guys, you need to have faith. You need to trust God. Have confidence in Him. And that's what he's saying. He said, don't be like the empty religious guys, but trust God the way that I trust God. Walk in the same confidence that I walk in and pray and pray. And as you pray according to the sovereign will of God, He will do all things for you. And so He he instills confidence in His disciples as He teaches them about how to follow Him and how to live in obedience to Him. He's courageous. And I mentioned that as we read the parable of the vineyard. But but Jesus is the most courageous being who's ever lived. He exemplified unbelievable courage to stand in front of these quote-unquote holy people these righteous people, and basically declare to them their guiltiness and ultimately their judgment. And he did so not only to expose their guilt, but also to show those who would be true worshipers that it's not about everything on the outside, it's what's on the inside, in the heart, that matters. So he stood for the glory of God while he stood against the powerful leaders. And then time and time again in this passage we see that he's wise, He is infinitely wise. He knows what to say, when to say it, and how to say it as he responds. You know, what what kind of wisdom was it when they asked him about his authority and and he essentially asked them questions to the point where they, they didn't demand an answer from him anymore because he has inherent divine authority, but he also has complete and full wisdom to be able to answer questions like the ones that they were asking. He's also Lord. He's not merely the Son of David. He is the Lord of David, which means He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And I just want to stop at this point and say, y'all, as Lord, we must bow down to Him. We must worship Him. We must give Him our whole hearts because He is worthy. He's not merely a good teacher. He's not merely a miracle worker. He's not merely just a, a, a rabbi who goes around and gives wonderful lessons, but He is the King of glory. Colossians 1 says that He created the world. says that He sustains the world. says that He upholds it by a strong and mighty right hand that He is the Lord of all and we must bow down and give Him the honor and glory that He is due. He is the Lord. And He was establishing that fact. Not only is He Lord, He is humble. He's humble. We, we see his, his humility as he exposes the pride and the arrogance and the puffed up nature of the religious leaders of the day. He says they go around with long robes. They expect these special greetings. They want the special place in the synagogue so that they sit by the treasury box or by the, I should say, the scroll box in the synagogue. So that's the the most special place. And And then when they walk around the marketplaces, they want you to bow down to them and give them reverence and honor. Now, Jesus doesn't say this at this point, but He could say, not me, not me. I have hung out with tax collectors and sinners. I've eaten dinner with those who the religious leaders would never even come close to, much less enter into their home. I have loved those who could not love me back appropriately. I have cared for the needy. I have struggled with children and men and women and those who are poor and those who are struggling. And I am a humble Lord. Now, he didn't say that with his words, but he did it with his life. He is a humble king. And finally, he's a teacher. Throughout this whole passage, he is teaching He is teaching us about the difference between true worship and false worship. The difference between true leadership and false leadership. The difference between what it means to actually bow down before God and actually set up yourself as a God. He is constantly teaching us the difference between those two things. And in that last section, he teaches us the heart of worship. He teaches us the heart of worship because he shows us the difference between a poor widow and rich religious people. And he's essentially saying, listen, this is true worship. Worship is not giving God your leftovers. Worship is not looking really good on the outside and like you're really special and really religious and really devoted when in reality inside your heart you're all about yourself, you're all about your money, you're all about your looks, you're all about your comfort, you're all about your own glory. And he he points us to that widow And here she is, she she just has the two little coins to rub together that would equal about a penny, and she puts it in, and by putting it in the treasury, she's saying, I worship you, God, I give you my life, I love you, I'm going to trust you, all that I have and all that I am belongs to you, I don't know where I'm going to get my next meal, I don't know how I'm going to pay my next debt, but I'm going to trust you with my life. That's the essence of worship. And so he teaches us about that. Certainly there are more lessons we can learn about the Lord but that's what we know about him here, kind of in a fast-forward kind of way. And so the question for us is, what should we feel? What should I mean? That's a lot of information. We absorb a lot about the servant king here. But what should we feel in response to that? Things I read the text over and over and over this week and just meditated on it. I had more reverence for Jesus Christ at the end of the week than I did at the beginning of the week. So I think we want to feel reverence for Him. We want to revere His perfect life. We want to revere His holy character. We want to revere His infinite wisdom. We want to revere His courage, His boldness, His tenacity in the temple. We want to bow down before Him and give Him the awe, give Him the respect, that He is absolutely worthy of. We want our hearts to be drawn to this great Savior, this servant King, and say, God, we give You all that we have and all that we are because You are glorious in Your wisdom. You are glorious in Your boldness. You are glorious in Your authority. You are glorious in Your love. You are glorious in the fact that You're willing to teach us and to show us the way Oh, we bow down before You, Lord. So we, we want to feel this reverence for the servant King. And as we do that, It should produce within us a life of thankfulness. Thankfulness. I mean, there should be a sense in which we read the words on this page and the boldness and the courage and the tenacity and the lordship and the kingship of Jesus jumps off to us at the page and we should say, thank You, Lord. Thank You for taking on human flesh. Thank You for humbling Yourself and living this perfect life and teaching these perfect words and showing us what true worship is. Thank You for being the servant King. I think that we as Americans and we as a people who have hearts that so incline us toward unthankfulness and pride and arrogance need to be reminded. We need to be reminded afresh that thankfulness should be part and parcel to our lives. I think that's why I've been so zealous to try to get us to express ourselves in worship more. Because when we merely stand with our hands behind our back or in our pocket, and we sing words with no expression on our face, and we don't move, and we don't do anything, and we just listen to sermons with these blank looks on our faces, and we just walk, and we talk, and we we act mundane. That is a spirit of unthankfulness. Because if you're truly thankful to God, it's going to change the way that you act. It's going to change the way that you respond to Him. Thankfulness produces an emotional excitement about the King who has come to save you. And so, thankfulness should be produced. And then loyalty to Him. Loyalty to this King. We should feel in our hearts a drawing toward Him that would say, I don't want to deny Him. I don't want to betray Him. I don't want to turn my back on Him. I want to follow Him wherever He goes, all the way to Golgotha if that's what it means, but I want to follow this great and glorious King. You know what? I think the last thing that our hearts should definitely be, be feeling is inspiration like when I read this, I'm just so inspired by the servant king to live the way that he lived. To be bold like he was bold. To be tenacious the way that he was tenacious. To be zealous for the glory of God and the kingdom of God the way that he was zealous for. To be zealous for for holiness, for righteousness, for love and compassion and true and earnest worship. So it should move us to a place of inspiration to live like Him and to follow Him wherever He would lead us. And so, as we know more about the king, and as we feel the kind of the same heartbeat of the king, then that should move us to doing, to doing something, to respond to the king. And so, that's what we're going to look at last. I think the first thing that Mark would have us do is we need to evaluate our lives. We need to evaluate our own lives. Because as Mark juxtaposes true holiness and false holiness, true righteousness and false righteousness, I think what he would have us do is say, well, which, which side do I land on? I mean, am, am I a hypocrite? Or am I a true worshiper? Is my religious life all about the externals? Where I go, what I do, who I talk to, the songs that come out of my mouth, Or is it about a heart that beats for the glory and greatness of the servant king, Jesus Christ? So I think we need to evaluate. So I think what I want to do right now is I want to just give you an opportunity to just bow right now. I want to ask you to just evaluate your own life. Evaluate your own life and search for any degree of hypocrisy in your life. Identify any aspect of dead religion. I mean, is there anything that you're just doing because you know that's what you're supposed to do? Is there anything that you're doing religiously because you know other people are watching you? Ask God right now to reveal any hypocrisy and deadness to your religion. Ask, am I a pretender? Or do I have the real thing? Okay, you can look up. I think the second step that the Lord would have us take is to repent. To repent. If we've seen anything in our heart and in our lives that say, you know what, that shouldn't be there. Then we need to, we need to repent. We need to confess our sin. We need to say, you know what, Lord. I, in fact, I have been more concerned about just making it to church and just doing the religious things, and I have been less concerned about worshiping you as King of Kings in my heart. I confess this. You turn from it. You ask for forgiveness. You go toward Christ and you run to Christ and say, Lord, I don't even feel and affection for you. I don't even feel this longing after you, but I know that I should. Would you help me? Would you warm my heart toward you? That's about repentance. You don't have to feel it right now. You just have to see that it's wrong that you haven't been living worshipfully. You've been living hypocritically. And I think the last thing that the Lord would have us do as we evaluate and as we repent would be to run to Him. It would be to follow Him. It would be to worship Him. I mean, as we read the text, if you go back and if you were to read these 68 verses again, I think what would jump out to you would be I need to love His holiness. I need to trust Him big time. I need to forgive people of their sins so that God will hear my prayers and answer them. I need to listen to Jesus' teaching. I need to see His wisdom. I need to, I need to pay my taxes. I need to believe in the resurrection and look forward to it. I need to love God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength and love other people as myself. I need to walk in humility. I need to give out of of what God has given to me sacrificially, lovingly, and generously in order to show God that I love Him more than anything else in this world. Those are the kinds of responses that God would have us make in response to this passage. And so I simply want to call you to the things I've been calling you to this whole series, and that is... Give to Christ everything that you are and everything that you have so that you will worship the servant king in your heart and not merely with your bodily actions and with your lips. There is a sense in which we are scribes, in which we read our Bibles and the Scriptures and we think that we know more and that we're better than other people and it elevates us in pride. We embody all those who would be going up against Jesus in the temple. We're guilty. But just as the song we just sang says, God has made a way. Because He left the temple and the people who hated Him and the people who, who wanted to oppose Him did that very thing. And they condemned Him to death. And they beat Him. And they ultimately executed Him. And as He was on the cross... He did exactly what He commanded them to do when He was in the temple, which was, He said, when you're praying, forgive others so that God will hear you. And Jesus said, forgive them for they know not what they do. And you know what? We were at the cross. We were at Golgotha that day crucifying Him because of our sin, because of our guiltiness. And God in Christ said, forgive them forgive them God has forgiven you you Herodian he has forgiven you you Pharisee he has forgiven you you Sadducee he has wiped your sins as far as the east is from the west because of what Christ has done for you on the cross and not only has he forgiven you he was buried and on the third day he rose from the dead and you, because of your forgiveness and because of his accomplishment, can walk out today and not be a Pharisee and not be a Herodian, not be a Sadducee, but you can be a worshiper of Christ. You can live in victory. You can live in power. And you can embody all that Jesus taught in the temple. Let's do that. You want to do that? Let's do it by the power of Christ. God, I pray a blessing on our people today that you would, by your Spirit, bring Not just conviction of sin. Not just conviction of righteousness. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, the ability and the passion to live it out. That they may honor their King, the servant King, Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed.